Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast, brought to you by Workman Forensics. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm Leah Wheatholter, CEO of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Joining me today is Gary Glanz. Originally working as a police officer in 1962, Gary made a name for himself as one of the youngest detectives in the history of the Tulsa Police Department, where he led the Tulsa Vice Squad receiving numerous awards and citations. In 1967, Gary left the Tulsa Police Department to establish his own private investigation firm. For over 50 years, Gary Glanz and Associates continues to produce results. Gary's ability to solve the tough cases brought him the attention of the Wall Street Journal. The front page profile article sealed Gary's reputation as one of the nation's top investigators when the Wall Street Journal named him the Super Sleuth. Thank you for joining me today, Gary. Glad to be here. Yeah, so happy to have you. I wanted to first kind of talk about how we met. Right. We had both been practicing in Tulsa for quite a while. I mean, you had definitely been practicing in Tulsa for a while. I was sure. new-ish, maybe had my business about five or six years. Yes. When we got, or you got a call right. about an oil and gas company who where they had had an embezzlement. That was correct. That was in February of 2015. Yeah, so a little while. It goes back sometime. Yes. Yeah. So you you started I think you brought me in so that I could start looking at the data. Right. Um and then once we kinda had a little sample of the data so that we could see what was going on, then you interviewed the subject. That's correct. What happened, uh, as I remember, you know, we were called because of the embezzlement and I met with the attorneys and principals of the company. And we set out a little game plan, and actually there was a paper trail on all this embezzlement. Mm -hmm. And it, it turned out uh, being in a little over two to three million dollars that this guy had embezzled. I got a confession in about 20 minutes at nice. the end of the interview, so it made it pretty easy. But what I found out uh, during the uh, the investigation was that this guy was taking all the money and buying all kinds of men's toys. And he, he had bought uh, 16 to 18 race cars that yep. he had never even driven one of them. He was loaning, loaning these race cars to his friends to race. Yep. Uh, he was buying military-grade weapons. Caterpillars, all type of four-wheel drive vehicles. I remember he had never shot any of those expensive guns he bought. No, well, in fact, he had a 50 caliber wow. sniper rifle that was worth around ten thousand dollars. Is that the one that was from France? I remember there right. was one. Okay. He had to have he had to have permission from yeah. from the Minister of Defense to get that into the country, and uh, I never got to fire it. So I, was, oh, man. I was a little di disappointed <laughs> myself. But uh, once we started recovering toys, I mean, we were recovering race cars in Missouri, in Kansas, uh, in Arkansas, and all over Tulsa. And all he did was buy them and let his friends race them. Yeah. So we made a substantial recovery thanks to your efforts. And the thing it was we had recovered so many items we didn't even know the value. One caterpillar, we recovered out of one of the barns and up in Ulaga, he had a five different barns on the property all loaded down with men's toys. Yeah. And, you know, I told the attorneys, this is out of my league. Let's get in here and figure out what this is all worth. And so it worked out real well. I put together the, this is when I was just working by myself, actually. Yes. I didn't even have a team at this point. 
And so I put together a sample and I remember you got the confession right. and you got him to agree that he would meet with me so that I could start asking him about all these transactions. And, you know, was this for the benefit of his employer or was this a benefit, you know, something that he purchased? And sure. so then and then you guys started working on collecting all of that. And then the client uh, was able to sell all of that stuff that you recovered uh, for about a third of what they lost. Yes. So. I actually had an auction, but what our goal was that company didn't have a fidelity bond on the employee. Mm -hmm. It was just all cash. Mm -hmm. And so we were you know, attempting to uh, recover as many assets as we did. Yeah. And it became a point where we were rounding up so many assets. We had an auction, and you remember the results of that. Yeah, it was about $900,000, I think, after the fees. So Recovered, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was an yeah. interesting case. It's an interesting case, and that's actually, you know, our very first game that we made at Workman Forensics. Uh, yes. One of our investigation games is called The Case of the Man Cave. Yes. Because that, anyway, so that's where that story came from. Right. Gary and I worked that one together. So that's a lot of fun. But today I want to talk about some of your highest profile cases from your career. Sure. And I, a couple of these you've told me in the past, just right. whenever we've met. But then there's one that I want to end with that I, I don't think I've ever heard the entire story. So oh. let's first start off with the, um, on your website, you call it the Casa Bonita Caper. Caper Casa So I want to talk about that one first. Okay. C Caper Casa Bonita was a real interesting case because it was back in the, June of uh, 1973, mm -hmm. and uh, the Wall Street Journal had called me, and they were wanting to do a feature story on us and, and come into Tulsa. So we set up an appointment, and uh, the, the reporter showed up from New York, and he was in my office. We had just met and started talking. The phone rang, and it was a Mexican restaurant here in town called the Casa Bonita. And they said, Gary, we got robbed last night, and they hit the safes. And uh, I said, well, you all need the police out there. They said, Gary, the police are here. And they said, we'd like for you to come out. And I said, well, I'm in a meeting. And they said, well, just bring him with you. So here goes this reporter with me, sees me, go in there, talk to the clients, uh, figured out real quick who did it. The reporter followed me through the whole case. Uh, we ended up, a manager was our, our prime suspect. A manager hired a team of guys out of Florida to come in and rob the place in the middle of the night. And uh, so they did. They took the money back to Florida and buried it in a swamp in, in Florida. And uh, the Wall Street Journal followed me through 10 days of this case and saw us make a complete recovery. So did you fly to Florida and oh, yeah. recoup no. the money? You oh, did yeah. all that? Well, we had to, he, he had buried it, and he was the only one that knew where it was buried. And interesting, he was a manager. He pled guilty, sent him to the penitentiary. He got out like three years later, came back, and robbed Casa Bonita and shot an off-duty Tulsa police officer on the parking lot oh, my gosh. named Pete Annex. And, uh, the police officers were picking up money for the taco buenos and things around and walked up and uh, point blank shot him right there in the parking lot in his car. I got called back into the case. We caught him again four days later, sent him uh, back to the penitentiary this time for 80 years. Uh -huh. 
and uh, I haven't checked to see if he's still in jail or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So why did you think it was the manager? There was an interesting case. What they did, I walked in on the scene of the crime, and there was two floor safes. They had drilled out one safe. I said, who's got the combination of this other safe? And they said, uh, well, our manager, but said he's on vacation in Florida. And I said, well, he's your burglar. He's our burglar. I said, yeah, let me show you what they did. He had the combination to one of the safes is all he had the combination to. They cleaned the safe out and he stole the head of the safe. No burglar steals the head of a safe. Mm -hmm. He stole the head of the safe and then went over to a duplicate safe, drilled into it, took the shavings from that safe and put them in the bottom of the first safe. So it made him look like he had drilled it and punched it, but what he didn't know is you couldn't punch it that way. We got a complete confession on that and a substantial recovery on that. So did once you, like, did you have to, was the manager actually on vacation in Florida? Yes. Okay. He, he established so. an alibi and sent a team of three men Yeah. and gave them written instructions to drive to Keystone Lake, come in at 2.30 in the morning, hit the safe, take the lid, uh, he, he staged this whole thing. So when you found him in Florida, did you talk to him and interview him? Oh, when I found him in Florida, the district attorney let me arrest him. Gosh. <laughs> and let this me, is in the 70s, huh? This is in the 70s. <laughs> Laws have changed quite a bit. Well, that was Buddy Fallis yeah, at the time. Yeah. If, if we have new PIs listening to this, do yes. not do this. No, <laughs> do no. not arrest your no. subjects. We, uh, we got a full confession from him and, and recorded it and and, and made four arrests out of the deal. And the, the one thing that really struck me was how vindictive he was to come back and shoot, yeah. shoot an off-duty toss police officer, you know. Yeah, for sure. And uh, fortunately, uh, he lived. And, uh, and I was with him. I worked on the police department with him when I was a police mm-hmm. officer. So that worked out real well. So then what did Wall Street Journal think about this? Well, what was amazing is the Wall Street Journal accompanied me, and I'd never even read the Wall Street Journal. Oh, goodness. <laughs> And I had solved a number of multi-million dollar cases mm-hmm. during that period of time. And they wanted to do this profile, so they came in and then they accompanied me. And it was kind of interesting as I was bringing these three prisoners back from Florida. When we got to Dallas, the pilot came on board and said he'd have to take me off the plane. He said, we're only allowed one escort per prisoner and you've got three of them. So they deplaned me in Dallas. I had to rent a car. And, and drive them up. Yeah, put them, put them in the back seat, bought them a bucket of fried chicken. <laughs> brought them back to, back to Tulsa. Tulsa, yes. Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. Okay, so so then the Wall Street Journal, though, they ended up calling you the super sleuth after this, right? Yes. They did this whole write-up on you? Yes. and That's uh, awesome. It was sort of strange. Uh, they're the ones that came up with the title, uh, the super sleuth mm-hmm. and I'd worked uh, another multi-million dollar case uh, up in Osage County where a rancher was shot and killed mm-hmm. and uh, he was insured for 15 million dollars and he had never paid a penny on his insurance premium mm-hmm. his insurance agent loaned him 110 percent of the first year's premium oh, just gosh. by signing his name the guy that was shot and killed, the owner of the ranch, was shot and killed. 
and uh, he died a year and two weeks into the insurance policy. But there was a 30-day grace period on the policy, on the end of the policy. The widow and I didn't even think the policy was any good. We confirmed that it was. We flew to Florida. We reinstated the policy for the two weeks that he was alive, filed a lawsuit. They accepted our money. We filed a lawsuit for $15 million. We settled it out of court in less than a year for $14 million. Wow. And at that time, it was in the Guinness Book of World Records. That was uh, the largest amount of money ever paid in the history of U.S. insurance on an individual death. That kind of sealed our reputation by being able to, you know, make recoveries like this. And we've had that success through our whole career. So that's how the Wall Street Journal learned of you, was from that yes. that murder up in Osage. Oh, yeah. So on that case, because that was one that I want to talk about today. Uh-huh. So the insurance agent had loaned him 110%. So did that loan have to be repaid? You know, I don't know because they settled it out of court. Oh, And yeah. it was there was a, a silent agreement. But uh, the Guinness Book of World Records, that was uh, in 1982. And uh, it was, like say, the world record at that time mm-hmm. for an individual death. Wow. Since he was murdered, did you learn anything more about the murder or who? Well, yes, it took on a life of its own. There's uh, three different books that have been written about it called The Mullendore Murder. Okay. And uh, it was kind of famous. And he was actually shot and killed by his bodyguard. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened the night of the shooting of the first law enforcement agency that arrived totally destroyed the crime scene. Mm. The The murder took place in uh, Osage County. Mm-hmm. Washington County beat him to the crime scene, removed the body, took it to the hospital, had it all scrubbed up, totally descri- destroyed the crime scene. In fact, I had to do the original crime scene for the law enforcement. They didn't even have a original crime scene sketch. Oh, man. So it was messed up. I referred the bodyguard to a lawyer. I said, Chubb, you killed him and let me tell you why. And I laid it all out to him and I said, you need a lawyer. And when you get a lawyer, they're going to tell you not to talk to me. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. The, the bodyguard was never charged with the murder. He became a fugitive, uh, ended up moving up to Kansas and went to the penitentiary. He told me at the time, he said, Gary, you've really been good to me and if I ever think I'm going to die, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. I made up all the reports for law enforcement. Uh, Forty years later, he calls me and says, Gary, I'm dying. You need to come and see me. And he gave me a complete confession on the whole murder, which nobody has ever heard to this day. Wow. So it was a... It so was, you were right. It was the bodyguard. It was the bodyguard. Why did you think it was him? Well, he staged the crime scene. Mm-hmm. And what happened is there was another guy at the ranch that night, and nobody knew he was there. And they had a brutal fight. In, in, uh, Who did? Who had the fight? The, the rancher and the bodyguard okay. among themselves. I asked him, I said, uh, he staged the crime scene. And after he shot him right between the eyes and killed him, shot him, uh, went outside and got this other man who nobody knew was on the ranch. Brought the man in. The bodyguard stood up. The guy got behind him and shot him through the back. And I was asking Chubb, I said, Chubb, how does it feel to know 
you're going to take a bullet. And he said, buddy, it'll make you pucker up. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and uh, wow. I befriended him. Uh, we got along great. He's passed away now. Sure. There's all of these stories are in our website, mm -hmm. which uh, is just the name GaryGlands.com. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, we've got quite a few of the famous cases in there. And that's what I find so challenging about this business and I always have is it's something different every day. Yeah, for sure. You know, We'll be right back to this interview. At Workman Forensics, we're your modern day Sherlock Holmes. The team at Workman Forensics follows patterns to find money through forensic accounting and fraud investigation services. Using our data sleuth process, we build client cases telling the story of what actually happened. This process serves clients in the best way, whether they are going through a divorce, a partnership dispute, an estate and trust dispute, or a fraud investigation. So what is data sleuthing? Well, after serving clients in this best way for 10 years, we are proud of our technological improvements, making our investigations work similar to that of a manufacturing process. By following a consistent investigative and internal process, our team addresses client concerns in a timely, responsive, and thorough manner. But don't worry, clients don't go through this process alone. We believe communication is vital to the success of an engagement. So each client is guided by a highly trained and specialized expert forensic accountant along the way. And because we think data sleuthing is the best way to investigate financial disputes, we work to train other professionals as well through our investigation games, guided interactive workshops, and our Be A Data Sleuth seminars. To learn more about any of these services or trainings, visit our website, workmanforensics.com. In fact, our website is full of resources for anyone looking to learn more about forensic accounting, fraud investigation, or our data sleuth process. This includes blog posts, free Excel downloads, more podcast episodes, and links to our YouTube channel. So if you're looking to get into the investigation industry, or if you've been an investigator for years, we know you'll find something helpful in our free resources. So visit our website, workmanforensics.com. Welcome back to my interview with Gary Glantz. One question, why did Mullendore have a bodyguard? What he, he owned the largest ranch in Osage County, which was about 55,000 acres. Okay. And it, and it may have been more than 55,000. You drove five miles when you entered the property just to get to the ranch house. Wow. Uh, he was heavily in debt. He had borrowed money from some mafia underworld characters. He had borrowed money from a lot of people. He had mismanaged the ranch and uh, was seeking money from quite a few different sources. Mm -hmm. His bodyguard wasn't actually a bodyguard, but a longtime friend of his that professed to be the bodyguard, probably one of the toughest guys I ever met in my life. And I asked Chubb that time, I said, what prompted the fight? And he said, they had been drinking and they got into it. After the fight started, Chubb said I couldn't knock him out. He was laying there on the floor, and he said, I knew I was going to be looking over my shoulder the rest of my life mm -hmm. if I didn't bring a conclusion to it. Mm -hmm. So he shot him right there before. Nobody knew this second guy was there. Yeah. He was out in the kid's playhouse behind the, the ranch house. After the shooting, Chubb went out and got him and brought him inside, and they staged the crime scene. But they really did a bad job of staging the crime scene. What did they do? Well, they claimed that there was two mafia men dressed in suits that shot him when they came into the ranch house and killed Mullendore, and that they ran off on foot. Yet they're in a 55,000-acre ranch <laughs> right. in suits, and they'd have met any place. 
they claimed during the process these two men ran out through the sliding glass door but you could see where Chubb was dripping blood and stuff and placed all the shots and none of the shots went out through the open door they all went out through the glass oh my goodness. and it was a clumsy setup yeah but the the district attorney's office had all the charges had everything prepared they had a change of administrations there were a lot of reasons surrounding it the most important thing to me was save the ranch mm -hmm. he was dead mm -hmm. we needed to collect on that insurance policy yeah. and by going through the process and filing the lawsuit we were able to save the ranch yeah. which was uh, for the family and had been yeah. in been, been in the family since uh, the Oklahoma land run. Yeah, I was going to ask, with a ranch like that, especially in Osage County, and we have people that listen to this from all over the world, actually. Yes. Um, so Osage, Osage County in Oklahoma is kind of known for their oil reserves. There's a lot of oil and stuff up there. Oil and cattle. Yeah. Oh. So uh, did he have a bunch of oil on oh his yeah. property? I mean, oh on yeah. 55,000 acres, I would think there's a lot of oil, oil up there. Well, he had oil and cattle both. And yeah. then also... Uh, Osage County is the largest county in the state of Oklahoma, and it may be the size of Rhode Island. Or I mean, that's mm. that's how large the county is. Yeah. And uh, law enforcement, there was, I don't know that the law enforcement ever even worked a homicide before that night of that shooting. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, this would predate your case, obviously, but the new book that's out called Killers of the Flower Moon, uh -huh. that's real popular, that took place in Osage County, but that would predate your well, case. But, but just if somebody's heard of Osage County, it might be from that new book. But, but it has stimulated a lot of interest in the Mullendorf oh, yeah. case. I bet. You know, and uh, we've... Uh, there's there's at least three books and now I'm in, in all three of the books and it's an interesting read. The Wall Street Journal did the first story on the Mullendore murder, mm -hmm. and it hit the front page of the Wall Street Journal, mm -hmm. and uh, they wrote the article and that was the first article and it dealt a lot with the finances and the accumulation of wealth and mm -hmm. uh, other uh, articles have been written then concentrated more on the murder. Mm -hmm. I've got the most complete file of anyone, and I've never shared it with anyone other than law enforcement mm -hmm. and the district attorney's office in Osage County. Sure. So that's a, yeah. an interesting story. So one other question on this is that if if this all started from, you know, Mullendore and the bodyguard Chubb right. being in this fight, uh -huh. was it kind of, like, does it, it feels a little premeditated to me if Chubb knew this other guy was hiding out in the hey, kid's playhouse. Well, what had happened, he had gotten fired earlier that day off the Chubb ranch. Had? No, Chubb's, Chubb's relative got oh, fired okay. that day and he was waiting on a ride home oh. from Chubb. And what happened after, and this guy was only 19 years old at the time, Chubb goes out, brings him into the crime scene. Oh, okay. The body's laying on the floor. Chubb just shot this guy right between the eyes. You're gonna do whatever Chubb tells you to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chubb said, Gary, I knew I had to take a bullet. For anybody to believe the story, and we still didn't believe the story. Right, right. You know, <laughs> kind of messed up the rest of it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, that one's really fascinating. Yes. All right, let's talk about another one involving a kidnapping case, and this one was in Tulsa, uh -huh. right? Uh huh. And uh, related to oil and gas, because right. this is oil and gas country over here. Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about this one. It was an interesting case. The uh, the kidnapper was a businessman here in town. And he was in debt and needed some money. And he 
I identified this one very wealthy individual here in Tulsa, uh, went to his house wearing a hard hat and a red flag. When the victim drove out of his house and started down the street, he flagged him down. The victim rolled the window down, he pulled a gun on him, slid him over in the seat, drove him to Utica Square into the basement, pulled up next to his car, took him out and kept him all day in the, back, in, in the car. And this is a very high-powered CEO. Very high-powered, yeah, yeah, you would recognize like, the name. People are gonna notice he's gone, yeah. Oh, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, well, what happened, he went to the bank. This guy also owned a bank. The CEO did? Yes, okay. and he said, I have him, and he meant to say $70,000, and he was nervous and he was scared, mm -hmm. and he said, I want 700000 and he said, I want it in 20s, 50s, and 100s. Oh my. And they said, we don't have that much money in the bank. It's going to take us all day to get it. And I said, you get it. And what year was this, just so we kind of know? That was in uh, 1974. Okay, so $700,000. was a lot, a, lot a lot of money. Back then, it was equivalent to, I remember the statistics, but several million dollars at yeah. the time. But uh, what happened, I got retained. They caught the kidnapper. I got retained because the kidnapper said he was innocent. And then a guy held a gun on him and made him do the kidnapping. Oh my goodness. And so the lawyers retained me to check this guy's story out. And I came back to the lawyers that represent him. I said, he's guilty. And I said, let me tell you what the problem is. That money is still out there floating around. They had this guy isolated in jail and they wasn't gonna be allowed to make bond. So I went down and over a period of three days, he wouldn't really fess up at first. After three days, I said, let me tell you what your problem is. He said, what's the problem? I said, that money's still missing and your kids are out there running around. The best thing we can do is pick that money up and you work out the best deal you can. He said, let's do it. And he told me where the money was. I went out with a team of people and located the money. I had him draw me a map and we recovered four duffel bags full of cash. Wow. And uh, there were $693,500 in cash. This guy was overdrawn at the bank and he had deposited 5,000 in this, uh, so he wouldn't bounce a check. Oh my goodness, how does uh, yeah. $700,000? Uh, yes, so that was an interesting story. In fact, at that time, that was the largest kidnap recovery west of the Mississippi River. Wow. I don't know to this. I'm sure it's not now, but... So I have a couple de detail kind of questions sure. for, like, you know, our true crime right. listeners here. So how did the police find the find the CEO and his kidnapper? How did, they, how did that resolve? That, that was kind of amazing. They did an excellent job. What happened, uh, they had him in the car, and they had dispatched... They had dispatched over a hundred FBI agents from a four-state area and brought them in. And what they were doing was staked out the city of Tulsa and writing down tag numbers of cars going through intersections is what they were doing. When the victim got released, he said, I was in a blue Cadillac and told him. They went back and identified the car yep. real quick and had him arrested in jail by the next day, but missed the money. Mm -hmm. We were able to negotiate a settlement with the attorneys, which he was looking at a life sentence in, in, in the pen and recovered all the money and uh, mm -hmm. made the family a lot more comfortable and uh, everybody was tickled to death. It was kind of strange. 
years later, I ran into the victim at Queenie's restaurant in Utica Square. Mm -hmm. And I'd never met him or talked to him. No one would let me talk to him when this was that all. entire case? No, while this was all going on. And I'd seen him in Queenie's quite a few times, and he came walking out the door, and I said, Mr. So-and-so, and he said, yeah. I said, I'm Gary Glanz. I'm the one that recovered your money. And he said, yeah, Gary. He said, nobody would ever let us talk. And I said, uh, I've got the complete file. I said, would you like to read it? Would it be upsetting? He said, I would love it. And I said, well, I'll see that you get a copy of it. Mm -hmm. So I had a copy of the file made up for him, delivered it to his penthouse. And about three days later, I got a thank you note from him saying, Dear Gary said, thank you for sharing the longest day of my life. Oh. My grandchildren will enjoy reading this someday. Yeah, I bet. And, and, and that's yeah. how he now knew exactly what happened. So you and I have talked about this case before, and you've told me there's kind of an interesting little side story to what happened to the money. Because uh -huh. the guy had put the money in the trunk, and then... Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, no, what, what happened, he was using his own car. The kidnapper was a car, license checked to him and everything, and he had the victim in the car with him all day long, calling the banks and giving them orders to where to drop the money, and he went through all that whole process. They let the victim out in the flight path of Jones Riverside Airport, okay. and they let him out, and of course, he called and, and got some help. Uh, they picked him up. They identified uh, the car that he was in all day long, mm -hmm. And uh, when the victim came home... Or when the kidnapper went home? Yeah, no, yeah. When, when the kidnapper went home, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he brought his car in and threw the keys on the credenza, and all these federal agents are looking for him. Mm -hmm. His son comes in, picks up the car keys, goes out and gets in the car and starts it up and drives down to the Restless Ribbon at Pennington's to buy hamburgers. And there's hundreds of agents looking for this car over town. And they were interviewing this son later, and they said, uh, what happened when your dad got home with that car? And he said, well, I got the keys. And uh, he said, I went down to Brookside and bought a hamburger. They said, did you ever open the trunk of that car? And he said, no, but I wish I had. Yeah, because <laughs> like, there were hey, seven thousand dollars yeah, in cash. Oh my goodness! But anyway, it, we did a bulk counting, and uh, literally it took all night long to count twenties, fifties, and hundreds. Oh yeah, gosh, because he thought he was getting seventy thousand oh, yeah. dollars, not seven hundred thousand yeah. dollars. And then, where did he tell you the money was when he drew you the map? Where'd you end up finding it? We, <laughs> it gets a, a little bit sticky there. Yeah. Law enforcement missed the money on a search, and I came along behind law enforcement. With I don't really. That the, the kid had Okay. And uh, found the money, and uh, it was. Uh, and there's a long story behind that, but uh, at that time uh, there was an awful lot of publicity because of who it was and sure. what happened and how the money was recovered. And uh, it's still pretty sensitive with some of these law enforcement agents. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. But so, was, it, was it hidden at his house somewhere? Yeah, was, or? Okay. Like, yes. Okay. And basically missed it on a search. Yeah. Is what they did. It's just in those bags yes. sitting there. Yes. In fact, I didn't believe it when he wrote the map <laughs> until I saw it. Yeah. And yeah. three of the four bags hadn't even been opened. One of the bags had been open and a handful was taken to put in the night depository. Nobody to, to this day I even remembers that story. 
Yeah. You know? That's interesting. So then how long did he end up getting uh, put in prison for since I, the money was recovered? Yeah. Do you remember? Uh, I think about, uh, I think the original sentence was 15 years. Okay. Was what it was originally. And then I think it was lowered after that. Okay. After yeah. it made a complete recovery. Nobody was hurt. Nobody. Yeah. So it was like 15 years as best I remember that. Okay. Well, these are so interesting. So interesting. So thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me today and share just three stories. You've got a lot more on your website, like you said, GaryGlands.com. Yes. Right? And we've got, we'll make sure we put a link on this episode. Yeah. Is that yeah. probably the best way to learn more about you and well, your work? A, yeah. There, on our website, uh, we have a video mm-hmm. and it covers... 50 years and 50 seconds. I like it. So it doesn't waste a lot of people's time, but they can go yeah. on the website and actually read a lot of our famous cases yeah. going back, you know, since 1967. Yeah, that's awesome. So, anyway. And you have kind of a page of some of the case stories, we and you've got of, pictures of, of some of your evidence. Oh, yeah. And, no, we've got a lot. Yeah, it's good. A lot of famous cases are on there. Yeah. And uh, especially if it happened in Oklahoma. Right. You know. Right. But uh, people find it interesting. And uh, with this COVID, we took the last year to decide to put a website together. Yeah. And yeah. thanks with Nick here, we got it all done. Yeah, that's great. And so it's, it's new and out. People find it interesting. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And I appreciate you giving us time and opportunity to yeah. and work a case. Yeah, well, and I've been wanting to record these stories for a long time, so I'm glad we could do this and share it with other people. And Sure. Um, i got to tell you, I think it's easier to steal money these days. It, that, <laughs> That's what I'm taking away from these stories. You know, it's, <laughs> things have changed so much with technology. Right. It's actually so much easier now with, with solving these things with computers and forensics. And mm-hmm. You've got to remember, when I started out in the business, there was only one phone company in town. Wow. And if you wanted information, <laughs> it was, in fact, when the Wall Street Journal wrote that article about, you talked about tapping phones and bugging rooms, and laws were much different back in the 60s than they are now. I would say so. But we recently solved a, a case in four hours that we recovered uh, on a smash and grab in Dallas, Texas. The thieves posted holding the money that they stole. Oh, my goodness in their hands and they were at a strip on joint social media. on social media and they were at a strip joint in Dallas on their way back to Houston and we solved that within four hours by identifying them through social media and the forensics on their phones yeah and now that's where all the information is yeah for sure and uh, technology has changed so much so uh, and I love the technology unfortunately I've surrounded myself with people that are really into computers. Yeah, there you go. You know, so yeah, it helps yeah. helps a lot. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Gary. Thank you so much. And um, I'm sure our listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. Right. Call me back. We've got lots of stories. Right. All right. All right. Thanks for having me.